Hi, this is Stephen Adair, pastor of Grace Christian Fellowship here in Odessa, Texas. And I want to thank you for tuning in today to our podcast. I hope this message encourages you, gives you hope, and reminds you that you are loved. Well, good morning. It is good to see you again. I was out last week um, somewhere in the middle of uh, the Caribbean. I can't tell you where because I was just on a giant boat. And whenever I looked on the map, there was nothing but water. And it's exactly where I wanted to be. And uh, so my family and I, we took a seven-day Caribbean cruise. We love to cruise. It's, uh, it's my personal way to vacation because you just get on the boat and you don't worry about a thing. Uh, there is literally food on every corner of a cruise ship. And if you don't go on vacation to do nothing but eat, then why go on vacation at all? So, um, but a 24-hour pizza and soft-serve ice cream, I mean, that's about as close to heaven on earth as I think we could get. So, uh, but it was great. We had an incredible time. Um, and uh, it, was, it was all of my family, so, so my three kids, Ariel, myself, as well as my mom and dad and Ariel's mom and dad. Uh, so our kids called it the grandparent cruise. Um, I don't know where that put Ariel and I, but, uh, but it, was, it was a lot of fun. And so um, Aaron was here uh, holding down uh, the platform last week, did an incredible job working through Acts 5. That's not an easy text to work through, which is why I planned my vacation accordingly. And uh, let him handle that one. But, uh, but we are back, and we are back in Acts chapter 6. And so uh, so we are, I'm excited to, uh, to dive in to uh, another interesting text, honestly. Acts 6 has some, has some uh, interesting twists in it as well. One thing that I wanted to uh, kind, of, kind of mention as we work through this is at the beginning of this series, I said, hey, we're going to be in Acts for a while. Um, and there's a lot of content in the book. Not only does it span over a, seri- of, over a period of chapters, uh, there's just a lot of stuff in the book of Acts. And there's a lot of places and, and ways that we could take each one of these texts. And um, it's been interesting to know that a lot of you have been studying Acts in different um, places, whether it's right now, like you're, you're doing a Sunday morning series in it here at church, and maybe your small group is going through Acts. Maybe you're a part of a community Bible study, which is going through Acts. I mean, you, you, could, you could be in a whole bunch of different places uh, studying Acts. And what is interesting about the book of Acts is no matter where you are studying, you feel like it's new every single time. Like you're getting different things every single time. You're, you're gleaning new insight, and new perspective every time that you work through this text. And let me just tell you that that's not just the book of Acts. That's the Bible as a whole. It doesn't matter how often you read any specific section. Every time you read it, something new is given to you. Something different is found. Um, And and we talked about this a a really long time ago where we talked about how there's so much to our spiritual lives that is a matter of perspective, right? That wisdom is gained through two different uh, lenses. That, that wisdom is gained through knowledge, through, through the facts of life, to have an understanding of how this life works and the facts that surround it. We all know that we are, you know, that we are held here on planet earth by this um, 
mystical force called gravity. And we all know that gravity will always win, right? That's just a thing that we, that we know. Um, but perspective, as well as the fact of gravity, is what gives wisdom. So perspective is gained um, by, I mean, it's really gained by one way, and that is just trial and error, is it not? So you gain a perspective uh, through living life, you gain knowledge through learning throughout life, and when those two things come together, you now have wisdom, right? And, and scripture speaks a lot about wisdom, about living a wise life, knowing truths, but also having perspective on the way that we live and bringing those things together and applying them in such a way where you can live a wise life. It is why as parents, um, we try to speak wisdom into and over our kids, right? Because we know that if you don't tie your shoelaces, gravity wins, Right, We know that. That's a thing that we know. And most of us know that because there was a period in which we did not heed the wisdom of our parents and tried to ride our bicycle with untied shoes and gravity won, right? So we know this. Our, our life has taught us this wisdom that we now give to our kids. Hey, tie your shoes. Hey, tie your shoes. The entire, all of last week, running around the cruise ship. Hey, Kaysen, tie your shoes because that's a really big ocean and we might not find you. Perspective and knowledge come together to give this wisdom. In Acts chapter 6, this young infant church that has just, just been founded months ago is in a season of explosive growth. This is something that has literally never been done before. There has never been a Christian church before this church. This is brand new, all new material. This, every single sermon that is preached is a brand new sermon, unlike all the ones that you guys hear, right? Everything is new. Everything is new. Every conversation, every spiritual encounter, it is all brand new. It's never been seen before. And they are in the season of explosive growth. And Acts chapter 6 presents a new thing that we as a, as a church 2,000 years later have become very familiar with. Um, and we still don't handle it well. We'll get there in a minute. But, but a new thing happens in Acts chapter 6. You ready for it? It's never happened before in a New Testament church. Conflict. Don't you love it? How many of you are like me? And when there's a good fight to be had, you're down for it. Anybody? It's not that I seek conflict. I'm not a conflict seeker. But if conflict finds me, oh, I'm, I'm game. I'm good. And here's the thing is God gave me a gift. And it is this, it's, it's this gift that I use a lot. Y'all are very familiar with it. It's, the, it's this gift of speaking, talking. I could talk for a really long time and I never get tired of it as y'all are well aware. And so I, I, I like conflict in which that is, that is engaging conflict. Now, now, if it's the kind of conflict where like you just storm at me full speed with fist coming, that's not my kind of conflict. Mostly because, I mean, look at me. Um, I don't stand a chance. But physical conflict, I'm not so much a fan of, but I love, I love a good debate. Love it. 
I will sometimes debate, Christine, everybody in the office knows this about me, I will sometimes debate the opposite of what I actually believe just to have a debate. It's just fun to me. I will, I will hear people say something and I'll be like, ooh, they sounded like they really believed that. Let's go see if they really believed that. And I'll challenge them because it's fun for me. Now, it may completely destroy them and everything that they ever thought that they believed, but that's beside the point. I'm in it for a good time, right? I want to have a moment of debate, this moment of conflict to just see what happens. But what I have come to know even about myself and what, what, what we have these conversations in, uh, like over in, in the office is I will present just different just because y'all know I'm, I am a church nerd, I'm a theological nerd. I love I love learning about different theologies and how they apply to to my own. I mean that's, that I, I, t I take that directly from Scripture. That's what Paul does. Paul. Paul was a constant learner. He would always take his theology and he would stretch his own theology. That's why as you read all of the letters of Paul, you, you can literally watch Paul's theology develop over the years. He'll say some things in, in one letter that he says differently in another letter. And it's not that he has changed his opinion, of his, that he has not changed the, the fact but his perspective has changed, and therefore his wisdom has changed, and he can apply his theology in a new and vibrant way. I love reading uh, like different theologians, and uh, N.T. Wright has this relatively new book, uh, and I, I might get the, the title of it wrong, but I think it's called uh, The New Testament in light of its, in light of its uh, current application or something like that. Basically, N.T. Wright, who, who is an incredible mind, he's, he's great if you've ever read any of his stuff. He also writes um, like on a, on a doctorate collegiate level. So I only, read every, I only read every fourth word because those are the only ones I can understand. Like the these and the ands and the this. I got all that down. The stuff in between. It's, it, I, don't, I don't know what he's talking about. But, um, but I like to read him because he challenges me. And he will take a truth, a, a biblical fact that I have known since infancy, and he will take it and he will say, now, at the time that it was written, at the time that it was given, here's what was going on in the culture surrounding that specific moment. That text that you're reading in Scripture, here's what was happening, and here's what it would have meant to the first century church. And he makes it real. And he brings this different element to the text. And he says, this is, this is what they were dealing with at the time that Jesus said this, or Peter said this, or Paul said this. This is why it was important to them at the time. And I, I think back and I go, man, like that is nowhere close to what it means to me today. I mean, I, I don't live 2,000 plus years ago. Um, I, I live in Odessa, Texas, and my perspective is very different than it would have been in Athens or, or Rome or somewhere else. But it's interesting to see how Scripture can move across time zones and regions and ethnicities and education levels and, and influential levels and how it can just move and weave in its way all through these aspects of life and yet still find a common purpose and grounding. Christ. You all know one of my favorite quotes by Charles Spurgeon is that as all roads lead to London, so all scripture leads to Christ. It's the truth of the Bible. All the way in Genesis 1, that God was there. God's formative plan in Genesis 1 
was all about leading people in the end to Jesus. And if you really look at it, you could see it. The Exodus season is all about leading people to Jesus. All the New Testament letters, obviously, all about leading people to Jesus. Revelation, this crazy, scary book at times, all about, people are like, well, that's, that's you know, if you weren't led to Jesus, here's what happened. No, 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 Revelation is about leading people to Jesus. It's all about leading people to Jesus. And this New Testament church that's being founded uh, by a group of almost unknown people at the time, these guys who had been, uh, spent a lot of their time just learning and listening to the words of Jesus are, are now put in charge of a brand new movement. In the New Testament time, they just simply called it the way. That was what it was. It was the way, the way of Jesus. In Acts chapter 6, the way comes across a speed bump. And it happens in the middle of a season of growth. Open up to Acts chapter 1, and I'll kind of bring all of that into context here. The wisdom of the scriptures is the most powerful thing that we as the church can lean into and up on. It is foundational. It is, it's, it's never changing. It is, always, it is always there. Now, our perspective may change and the way that we read the scripture may change, but the word of God remains true all of the time. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 but as the believers rapidly multiplied. So this isn't, just like a, this isn't just like a couple of people are coming to check out the church every once in a while. This is a season of explosive growth. There are churches, like there are churches today, there's a publication called Outreach Magazine. Uh, every year around uh, September or October, somewhere there, they release a issue that, are, that is the fastest growing churches in the country. The top 100 is what they call it. There are some churches that are over 5,000 people that were founded in, two th in, in uh, 2018. 5,000 people in two years. That's what is referred to as explosive growth. They hit an area of the country or a city that was prime for revival, and they brought something. And here's what they brought, the Word of God. And the Word of God was so enticing, it was so sweet, it was so good, that, the, that, that entire community said, we want what they got, and they came. Thousands of people at a time, rapid growth. That's the kind of growth we're seeing in Acts. Scripture has told us that 5,000 people were added to their numbers that day. Thousands of people are coming. This is not just a trickle effect. This is explosive, rampant, radical growth that is happening in this New Testament church. But with growth comes change. And with change comes rumblings of discontent. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now pay attention to how that was written out. The Greek-speaking believers were, dis were, were grumbling against the Hebrew-speaking believers. 
It's interesting the way that Luke writes this out. You see, for there to be conflict, there always has to be two camps. There always does. Now, there could be, it could just be one camp, but within the camp be two camps of people. That's what's happening here. They're one church, or they're supposed to be. They're one church, but they view themselves as two groups. One church viewing itself as two groups. Let me just, I'm going to speak this now and come back to it later. That ain't what Jesus died for. Jesus did not die to die for one church that saw themselves as two groups. The problem now that we face is we say, well, we're all the church. Everybody is the church of Jesus, but we don't see each other as the church of Jesus. We see each other as Methodists, Presbyterians, Protestants, Baptists, interdenominational, non-denominational, people who kind of think they are a denomination but aren't sure if they're a denomination, and the people who think that they're damnation. I mean, not those people. We, we see all of these different groups. And we look at all of them and we say, well, we're not them. Oh, thank God we're not them. We're the true church. Or we're the right church. Or we're the more right church. That's how we look at it. And unfortunately, I mean, it really is unfortunate. It started in Acts chapter 6. It only took us five chapters. And we start finding problems with each other. And what's curious to me is how Luke writes it out. He says that it's the Greek-speaking, what? Believers. Believers. Against the Hebrew-speaking, what? They're all believers. Yet language becomes the breakdown. What's crazy is they're not even upset with each other at their different languages. That's That's not the problem they have. The Greeks aren't upset with the Hebrews that they speak Hebrew. The Hebrews aren't upset with the Greeks that they're speaking Greek. They're not actually upset with anything culturally relevant. Not at all, or at least not according to the text. They're not arguing over the fact that they may eat different foods. They're not arguing over the fact that they may speak different languages. They're not arguing over anything that is culturally relevant. What they're arguing over is importance. Who is more important? That is what they grumble against. Here's the problem with the argument, is the very titles that Luke gives them is if they are all true believers, then not one of them is more valuable than any other. That's the truth of the gospel, is it not? That every man, woman, and child, Greek, Hebrew, whatever you are, in Christ Jesus, you are all one in spirit. That's what Jesus came to die for. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. And what just gets me, what gets under my skin, is it's not a matter of language or culture. What they're actually arguing over is importance. Now, it's framed up in regards to the widows. And the fact that they're using the old people for their argument really makes me upset. Because they're looking to those who are in the position of need. And they're using those who are in the position of need as their position of leverage. If the, church, if the church is ever looking for a position of leverage, let's not look to those who are in positions of need. 
That, that should be our greatest ministry opportunity, not our greatest opportunity to catapult ourselves into greatness. But they look out and they say, wait a second, the Hebrew widows are getting fed. The Hebrew widows are getting taken care of. Are they more important than the Greek widows? Are they more important than our widows? Because our widows aren't getting food. Now, sometimes the, the, the Stephen Adair in me comes out. And I read that and I want to tell the Greeks, go feed your widows. Anybody else? If the Hebrews are feeding their widows, go, go feed your widows. Go take care of your own. That's sometimes what I want to say. Take care of your own. Some of you say that too. Maybe not some of you in this room, but I've heard it. I go back a lot to my time working with Denver, working with homeless kids. It was, uh, the reason why is because it was just such, such a formative time. But I remember one thing, and I, I, like I said, I kind of like conflict, specifically if it's in conversation. One time I was working with this group of homeless kids, um, and we were sitting on a sidewalk, just hanging out, just, 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 just hanging out. And one of the guys was like, man, I'm kind of thirsty. I want to go buy a Coke. And the guy was walking by, and he, one of the kids looked up at the guy and said, hey, man, you got any change you could spare? And the guy looked at him and said, man, why can't you just get a job? We're in a moment of honesty in the room. How many of you have ever said that? To, I'm, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. It's totally embarrassing. And it's a shame. And here's why it's a shame. Never say that to a homeless person. I'm, I'm just going to tell you right now. Never say that to a homeless person. Because for people to get a job in this country, there's a whole lot of things they got to have. A whole lot of things they got to have. Now, you could think to yourself, well, I have a job, and because I have a job, I'm able to provide all of these things. Yes, and it's because you have a job and you're able to provide all of those things that in the event you need another job, you can get one. I worked with kids who mostly found themselves on the streets because they were abused. And most of those kids, and I say kids, most of the people I worked with were between the ages of 16 and 22. I was uh, 18. I was working with kids that I called kids that were four years older than me. I, I know it doesn't make sense, but that's the way it was. And most of them would leave abusive situations. Maybe they were abused by their dad or an uncle or whatever, but one night they had had enough, and so they left. Now, whenever you're leaving a moment of abuse, let me tell you some of the things that you're worried about. You're worried about getting out of the house. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's what you're worried about. You're not overly concerned about where you're going, what you're going to do, and what, how you're going to get there. That stuff you'll figure out on the way. What you're concerned about is saving your life and getting out of the situation. What you're not concerned about is making sure you grab a photo identification, making sure you grab your birth certificate, being sure that you go and hunt down your social security card, all things that you're going to need if you're going to get a... So next time you see a homeless person... Please don't let the first thing that comes to your mind say, why don't they just get a job? Because the reality of your statement is, one, it's ignorant because the odds of them being able to are slim to none. Now, why is this such a mm, just thorn in my flesh as we work through Acts chapter 6? By the way, we're only in verse 1. <laughs> it's because that argument that opens up in Acts 6 is one that has made its way to the present day. I'm basically, why don't you just get a job as saying, I'm too important to help you, so you need to go and help yourself. 
My time is too precious to stop for you, so you need to go and help yourself. That's what it's about. That's where we land. Is we, why don't you just help yourselves? The reality is, is they can't. They just can't. I, I worked with people, I worked with, uh, with uh, uh, army vets while I was on the streets of Denver. They were way outside of our scope of work, but um, in the homeless communities, everybody hangs out with everybody. I worked with this one guy who, who had fought in Vietnam, um, and, and he had stories that were just incredible, incredible stories. And I asked him one time, I said, I said hey, like, do you have any of your, of your military information? Any of it? Because if you do, then we can begin. We had a lady that worked in our office, and all she did was scour, uh, was scour public records so that people could get their Social Security uh, cards and birth certificates all, so we could get them um, help. And, and there's, there's millions and millions of dollars available to people if you have all the right documentation. You can't just be homeless and walk into a, to a government office and say, hey, I'm homeless, give me help. They're going, to, they're, they're going to ask a whole bunch of questions. It's just not that easy. And so we, I would ask, hey, do you have anything from your military days? And um, sometimes they may have, have um, dog tags that they had kept for years and years and years, but most of them, most of them could, they could remember maybe a unit number, which we could start with that. They could kind of remember um, maybe, a, maybe a lieutenant or somebody that they served under. Um, and we could kind of begin to create a foundation. But this one guy's name was Leroy. And Leroy, um, he, I, he asked me, he goes, what do you want to that for? I was like, well, I mean, if we could go back, then maybe there's some benefits that you're, that you're able to get. Maybe we can find you some, some, some housing. We can get you some health care. And he was like, I don't want any of that stuff. This is my home. These, this is my family. This is who I am. Now, to me, that's ludicrous, right? Because I know what air conditioning is, and I would not want to live outside of it. But Leroy was fine. And one time I asked him, I said, you know, I could see it. He was dealing with some things. There were these mental illnesses that he was struggling with. And he knew that if he were to ever give in to the system, then the first thing that they were going to do was tell him what he wasn't able to do. You'll never be able to live on your own, Leroy. You'll never be able to take care of yourself, Leroy. You'll never be able. So we're going to institutionalize you because, um, well, you can't take care of yourself. And if you can't take care of yourself, then this is what you get. And Leroy knew that. And he was kind of like me, stubborn. And he said, I will prove them wrong that I can take care of myself, that I can live the way that I want to live. I can do my own thing. And so he did. He didn't want the help. He couldn't get it because he didn't have the right stuff anyway. But he also didn't want the help because he was proving a point. He was proving that he could do it. So I dealt with both. Those people who could or wanted to take care of themselves to whatever level that may look like and the people who just simply could not take care of themselves and to both of those groups, telling them to get a job was just degrading. It spoke in for me to Acts 6. Because the grumbling that is taking place is simply a grumbling of division. If I'm blunt with you, it's the grumbling of division that is the source of the majority of the problems that the church faces today. Us 
versus them. The haves, the have-nots. Churches who are growing for whatever reason to churches that are dying for whatever reason. As a pastor of a growing church, I can't tell you how many times I've heard other, some locals, some pastors that I've known from, from growing up that, I, that, have, that have called me or told me to my face, what, what are you doing at Grace that you're growing the way that you are? And what lies have you been telling them to get you there? Because in our culture, a growing church must be far too theatrical. A growing church must be far too edgy. A growing church must not really be biblically founded because if you're really preaching the Bible, well, people don't want to hear about that. Those are all things that church culture says you're not being true enough. If you're growing, you must not be a real church. But really? Because the church in Acts was growing by thousands of people and they're the realest church that we know about. But it's all about us versus them. Dying churches don't like growing churches. You know why? Because the growing churches are who, who, who was taking the dying church's members. Not everybody sings the song, I will go down with this ship. Right? <laughs> Some people say, I'm going to go down the road. And that's what they do. Because it's an us versus them mentality. Church against church, person against person, job against jobless. That's the way that culture operates. It's, that's the way that grumblings start. Greek versus Hebrew, that wasn't the problem. The problem was importance. Who was more valuable? And the disciples look out. And you have to understand something about the work that the disciples are doing. Is the majority of the church at this time was Jews who have converted over to Christianity. That was the majority of the makeup of the church. Now that's an interesting thing to know because you also need to think about how long this church movement's been happening. Just a couple of months, relatively new. Jesus was resurrected not too long ago. He then went up in the sky not too long ago. But the thing about it is that Jews are believing in this Jesus, the crucified Jesus. Now why do I say it that way? Because historically and traditionally, the Savior that the Jews were waiting on did not look like a dead one. The saviors that the Jews were waiting on was this mighty, influential ruler, a king. Someone who was going to show up, and with power and authority, they were going to put the Romans in their place. They were going to raise up the Jewish people. They were going to put the, people of, the Jewish people back into a place of prominence and importance and royalty. That's what they were waiting for. That's the Jesus they were expecting. And then they got this guy, who was not that. So all of these Jews who have converted over to Christianity, they are still, I believe, still struggling with this reality. We are following a Savior that doesn't look anything like the one that we were told about. So all of these Jews have made a conscious decision to not just follow Jesus, but to also disown the mentality of what they thought they were going to be. Jesus did not make them famous. 
Jesus did not make them powerful. Jesus did not make them rich. That's what they were waiting on, but that's not what they got by coming over to Jesus. And so these Jews, these Hebrew-speaking Jews, who have been raised up in a culture of religion— with an understanding of what church was supposed to look like, not only are they dealing with the grumblings from the Greek-speaking believers, but they're still also internally dealing with all of their own stuff. Guess what? So are we. Every time that you bring a complaint or a grumbling before anybody else, it's just an add to their own stuff. The things that they're already dealing with. Now, you don't know everything going on in somebody's life. Or I hope not. That would be weird. Stalker is the name that we would call you. But you may not know everything going on in that person's life. But what you, what you definitely need to know is if they're with you here in this place, then you should not view them as Greek-speaking or Hebrew-speaking or whatever other label you want to put on there. What you should see them as is the next word, believer. Now, it's not to say that believers don't get the chance to complain. Complain all you want. It is to say this, though. The way that you speak a complaint in a group of believers is vital to the life of the movement. It's vital. This church, as a member of grace, this church and the leadership of this church might sometimes make decisions that you are not 100% in agreement on. And if that happens... We have no problem with you coming to the leadership of this church and saying, hey, you know what? I don't really agree with what we're doing. I, I don't know how we got there or why we're doing it. Um, I, or I know why we're doing it, but I still don't agree with why we're doing it. And that's fine. We can handle that. Here's what we ask that you not do, and biblically you shouldn't do, is take that complaint out to the world and go, well, I go to Grace Christian Fellowship, but man, I hate it there. You wouldn't believe what we're doing. You wouldn't believe the things that we're doing. You wouldn't believe how young our pastor is. That church hired a 26-year-old preacher. What wisdom does he have? None. I had none, and we all know it. It's, it's just the truth of it, right? Still gaining. But we, that's the way that, we, that's the way that we, we should not grumble. The one thing that the church in Acts at least did right was they grumbled in unity. Believer. The Greek believer, the Hebrew believer. I still believe that their primary objective was oneness. To be united but the Greeks felt like they were the outsiders, and they had for years. Because the Jews had a culture, they had an understanding, they had the inside church jokes, they had it all. And this Greek group is trying to come into the fold, and they are struggling. And they just found a way to complain, and they started with this one. Our widows are being left out. They're in the middle of a season of transition. And with every season of transition, there is always hard things that happen. 
There may be new people, maybe new things. It's always hard. But seasons of transition also bring seasons of great potential. And the New Testament church is the greatest example of that. Because the Greek-speaking, Jew, the Greek-speaking members of the church, the believers of the church, against the Hebrew-speaking members of the church was not going to be a good thing. It was not going to be a thing that was going to propel them into greatness. It was not going to be the thing that was, we were going to be talking about centuries and centuries ago as being the defining moment of the greatest Christian movement on the face of the planet. No one goes to Acts chapter 6 and says, hey, you remember that first fight we had? Nobody. Because they came through it. But the way that they came through it, it's kind of interesting. Because the reality of the moment is that they are becoming more dynamic and more diverse than they have ever been before. This is a moment, a defining moment for this church. The way that leadership makes this decision is the make it or break it moment. If they make the wrong decision, they could lose half of their congregation. Yikes. They would just go down the road and call themselves Second Christian Church, but no, come on. that was a funny joke, y'all. Some of you are like, oh, that's too real. That, I, that's too real. I'm not, look, Jesus forgives the past, all right? So if you were the people who one day got mad, what, so be it. Here's the thing, though, is that here in this place, we're challenging, this, this text is challenging something, the unity of believers. That's really what it's about. And it's not an easy text to preach. I'm sure Aaron is happy to preach on Acts chapter 5. This text is about the unity of believers. And here's, oh, y'all are, some of you might like the way that this goes, like me. I personally love the way that this goes down, but that's because I am a preacher. Some of you are not going to like the apostles' answer to this. Are you ready? Here's what they say. So the 12 called a meeting. Remember, grumblings against each other about importance. They call a meeting of all the believers and they say, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Did y'all hear that? Now, I'm not saying our staff is apostles. But what I am saying is our staff does a whole lot. More than you could probably ever imagine. And some of you in this room have gotten upset with me or Jonathan or Aaron or Christine or whoever because you had this great ministry idea. Man, it was epic. Your ministry idea was going to change the course of Christianity across the globe. It was a good one. And so you came to one of us, and this is what you said. Do you know what we should do? My response most of the time, if I'm honest, is, you got a mouse in your pocket? Where's the, who's this we? Who's the we? You know what we should do? We should start a food pantry. Oh, we should, huh? We or we? Because I have a job. I mean, I, I, so do you. I get that. But I'm not coming to your place of employment and saying, you know what we should do? Right? I'm not, right? We, here's, here's, here's where the breakdown happens. Is I'm not a part of your community at whatever place of employment you're working at. However, here, we are a unified part of a unified community. But a lot of you have the mentality 
This isn't like a dog to church day, I promise. It gets better. Let's just get through the grunt work. The problem with that mentality is what you're going to do is you're not going to let any ministry get done because right now all we're working through is ideas. I mean, I know a lot of churches. They got a whole lot of ideas, lots of them. And you know what their problem is? Is they're trying to do them all. There can be a church of 100 people that has 200 programs. You know how much ministry they're accomplishing? None. Because they are only concerned about making sure they get through all their programs. All the while, their community around them is dying. But they got 200 programs. Why, why are our programs not impacting our community? Well, probably because they don't know you. Because when all of your energy is focused on running the program, how do you have time to go make connections with people in your community? When all your energy is spent making sure that you have all the things that you think a church is supposed to have. My very first ministry job, this is not an exaggeration, although I wish that it were. My very first ministry job, I was the youth minister for a church in Kerrville, Texas. Now that's not unusual. But here's why I was the youth minister for a church in Kerrville, Texas. Do you know how many teenagers that church had whenever I got there? Three. It was awesome. Most epic youth ministry ever. They had three teenagers. So one day, just out of curiosity, I asked one of, one of the parents. I said, hey, do you know why? Like, do you know why they hired a youth minister? And honestly, <laughs> uh, make me feel better about myself after this. Honestly, said, well, we hired a youth minister because, well, Every other church has one. <laughs> well, I, I'm so, what? That was the reason. Not because the church, they felt like needed a youth minister. From, from a ministerial need, they needed a youth minister because they had a spot on the website that said youth minister and it was blank. That's why they needed a youth minister. Every other church had. Yes, listen, I know a lot of churches have a lot of programs that we don't have. And I'm personally okay with that. Because there's one thing that we definitely have that a lot of churches don't. Love. In fact, here in a little while, you'll meet some new members. If you were to ask the majority of those new members, why, do you, why, why grace? I would put money on the table, I'd put money on the table that their answer would be one of two things. Man, we felt welcomed here, or the opposite, we felt loved here. They're really the same thing, just men are too macho to say love, so they say welcomed. <laughs> right, Matt? Yeah. Whenever you ask Matt, he's going to say, I, just felt, I, <clears throat> I felt welcomed here. But that's what we got. And I don't want to lose that. Man, I don't want us to become so programmed that we program the Spirit of God right out of this place. Yeah, we got an order of worship. Every single week we make an order of worship. Do you know what happens sometimes? Sometimes I look to Erin and I say, hey, do that again. And her eyes get this big. Sometimes y'all see her. And she's like, I don't, I don't know how to make this song transition another time. We're just going to wing it. We went to a conference one time and the pastor called that cramativity. Like creativity, but just last minute, crammed in. Because there's sometimes the Spirit of God just shows up and says, you know what, today you're not going to do what you planned on doing. In fact, most sermons, <laughs> that's why we're still only on verse 2. <laughs> what time is it up there? Oh my goodness. 
Because I want you to understand something. That this, honestly, and I, I, mean, I mean, I know that sometimes I'm, I try to be funny. Sometimes I am, but this is a true statement. One thing, one thing that I don't want to see happen to us, I, I believe, I'm going to state this first. I believe that the best for this church is yet to come. I honestly believe that. We have seen incredible things happen over the last few years, and that is great. But I honestly believe that that's just, God is just barely scratching the surface for what is ahead of us. This is our trial season. God is saying, let me give you a few people and see how you can handle a few people. Let me give you a few more people and see. There's, there's a scripture about that. It's Luke 16. We're actually going to read it here in a minute. Maybe. But... Um, <laughs> I, I believe the best is yet to come, but here's, but here's the problem, and, and it's, it's the problem, is if we're not careful, then we will let the grumblings of indifference and importance drown out the whisper of our God. That's a real possibility. It truly, and it's why, and I don't think the apostles were being mean. I don't think that they were being insensitive whenever they said, listen, Art, we have, we have a call. They had a calling. Jesus himself said to these 12 guys, it is your responsibility to take this message to the ends of the world. Look, if Jesus himself told me that too, I'm looking to people and I'm saying, yeah, I, don't, I too do not have time to run a food program. But what's great about the kingdom of God is some of you do. Some of you do. Some of you do have time to go wake up on Tuesday mornings, Mike? Tuesdays? Some of you do have time to wake up on Tuesday mornings before Jesus does at 3 a.m. Now, what time do y'all actually start? Four. Okay. Larry's risking it, man. I don't know if you could sing Jesus Take the Wheel that early. He might still be, woo! 4 a.m., 4.30, 5, somewhere in there. Some of you can't. Some of you can wake up that early. You don't have four kids to get ready to go to school and daycare and everywhere else. Some of you can get up at 4.35 in the morning and go to Jesus' house and start cooking breakfast to serve those that are in need. Some of you can do that. Not all of you can, but some of you can. And you know what? That need gets taken care of because that's how big the kingdom of God is. Some of you, some of you can't, physically cannot serve kids over in kid men. Some of you can't. Some of you, some of you, have aged, you have aged out of your immune system. Your immune system is like, do not drop me in the cesspool of children. <laughs> but we believe in the healing power of the Spirit of God, so go after it. Oh, we're just kidding. Some of you can't. But a lot of you can. And you might be thinking, yeah, but Stephen, that's just not my giftingness. But maybe it is. You don't even know it yet. Because the apostles say, look, that's not for us. We have a job, we have a calling, and it's an important one. But we also believe that making sure the widows get fed is important too. It's not that we need to forget about it. It is important too. It's just not for us to do. And so they say appoint, they say, uh, appoint four people. Where am I at? Uh, verse three. And so, brothers, select seven men. Oh, I'm glad I read the, read the Bible because I would have got that wrong. Seven men who are respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time praying and teaching the word. That was what was important 
to them in the season that they were in. Verse five, one of the most overlooked, maybe the most overlooked miracle in the entire Bible. And it says this, everyone liked this idea. (laughs) Everybody, huh? Luke says, Every, I've never, never gone to a church where an idea was given and everybody liked it. There was always that one person. But you kind of counted them out because they never liked any idea, but you, know, you got to give them some credit. Everybody liked the idea. Everybody liked the idea. And here's why everybody liked the idea, is it removed the level of importance. It said, hey, this is a task that needs to be done. So let's make sure that it happens. So you guys select seven men among you who are respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. What was the responsibility? Feeding people. I want you to look at the, at the, uh, the attributes that the apostles asked for. None of them said, please make sure that these people have experience at Outback. Right? Nobody. None of them said, please make sure that these people are safe to serve certified so that they know how the proper temperatures to cook our foods and to wash their hands every 22 seconds? None of them. That, none of that was a qualification for serving food to the widows. I don't know if that just meant the apostles didn't care about the health care of the widows or what, but beside the point. Here's what I do know, is what they said was make sure that these people are what? Well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. Hmm. And so they go out, And they find these seven men. For sake of time, move down. I want you to look at at, uh, Acts Acts 6, verse 7. They select these seven men. It names them. The first one that lists is Stephen. It says in parentheses that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen becomes an important character starting at the end of this chapter. We're going to save that for next week on purpose. Acts chapter 7. But here's what I want you to notice. Is that small things, small positions lead to big changes. See, some of you, yeah, I'm going to say it. Yep, I'm going to say it. Some of you won't do jobs because they're not big enough. Just truth. Some of you won't. Some of you will say, I'm making coffee, doesn't get enough credit. Although my opinion is the most important job here at the church. (laughs) Serving kids, meh. Not enough, not enough credit, although in my opinion, it is probably the most influential position here at the church. Some of you say, no, I'm not going to greet people in the foyer. I want to touch hands. I'm gerbophobe. Although in my opinion, what better way for people to experience love and welcoming than at the front door? Some of you won't do jobs because they're not preaching. Well, I got this one, and it's on lockdown. But that's really part of our culture's problem. Is we don't want to do a job unless there was a big reward to it. But small things in the kingdom of God lead to huge things in the kingdom of God. Because, because these seven men 
took on the job of taking care of the widows. It freed up the apostles to do the job and the calling that was placed on them. And verse 7 says, So God's message, because they took care of that need, because they fed the widows, the apostles could continue doing what they were doing. And verse 7 says, So God's message continued to spread, and the number of believers greatly increased in all of Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. See, back to Luke 16. Luke says this. Jesus says this in Luke 16. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. You see, Jesus is saying that if you are true to the small tasks that I give you, if you're honest and diligent in the small things that I give you, then greater things can be given to you. As a church, that is so true. If we are not true to the small tasks that are before us now, then we cannot anticipate greatness to come, greater things to come, because we're not managing what we have today. This is the moment in which the apostles look to the church and say, guys, it's no longer our responsibility to carry you. It is now your responsibility to carry you, to care for everybody who is in need, to care for every need that you see. It's your responsibility to serve in the building and outside of the building. And this incredible thing happens. If you're serving this morning, you can make your way back as I'll wrap this up, I promise. This incredible transition happens in the life of Stephen. See, Stephen was selected to be a waiter. He was selected to serve food, selected to take care of the widows. But then, at some point, a transition happens in the life of Stephen. To where he's no longer just, he probably still is, mind you, taking care of the widows, but he's also doing something else. And verse 8 says, Stephen, who used to be just a man full of the Spirit, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Now, Stephen, all the way back in verse 4 and 5, could have said, I don't want this job. It's not powerful enough. It's not influential enough. It doesn't get credit enough. I'm not, old people scare me. He could have said any of that, but he didn't. He took the responsibility as it was given to him, and he served it. And we don't know how long he served in it. We don't know what he did while he was in it. But what we do know is based just on a few verses later is in that season, progression happened in Stephen. To where he went from being a waiter at a table to performing miracles. Now that's a huge transition. But we don't see Stephen performing miracles in the beginning. We see that he was full of the Spirit of God, and he started by waiting tables. And he served faithfully the people of his church. And at some point in that, transitions from a person who waits tables to a leader of the movement. Ultimately, he becomes a preacher. And he was such a good preacher that he kills him. It's the way I want to go out. I want to be not stoned. I don't want to be stoned to death. But I want to be preaching a really good sermon and God be like, you've said all you're supposed to say. Wouldn't that be cool? Is that just me? Is that kind of grotesque? I don't think about how you want to die. I'm the only weirdo in the room. Really? I, do, I know y'all. I know that's not true. I mean, it'd be weird for y'all. This. <laughs> 
I'm, one day I'm going to just pass out, and y'all are going to be like, he's done, he did it! Really, I'm just going to need a cup of water. Y'all are going to bear me in the ground. <laughs> Stephen moves from being a table waiter to an incredible influencer. But he didn't start as an incredible influencer. I started <laughs> as a youth pastor just because we needed one. You move, you develop, you gain insight, you gain knowledge and perspective, and you gain wisdom. And the Spirit of God will continue to work through you to accomplish incredible things. In John chapter 17, Jesus says this prayer. He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, those who he had called together, those who were the foundational pillars of the church. He says, I'm not just praying for them, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's you guys. I pray that they will be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Pay attention to the words of Jesus right there. Jesus' prayer in John 17 takes place right before his death. And one of the last things that he prays about is for the unity of his future church. And here's why. He even says why he says this prayer. He prays for unity for a very specific reason. And you might have missed it, so let me go back to it. He says this. I pray that, you will, that they will be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. Why? And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. You wonder why culture has such a hard time believing in Jesus. Maybe it's because his church has such a hard time standing in unity. Let them be one as we are one so that the world will believe that you have sent me. Acts chapter 6, the beginning of it, the second half is the story of Stephen. We'll start that next week. But the beginning of Acts chapter 6 is this moment in the church, in the early church, that I believe with everything I am that every church right here, right now, today is facing. Are we going to be unified? Are we going to be a church that stands as one? You may not agree with everything that we as a church do, and I totally can understand that. There's sometimes that I preach sermons and a few months later I'll go back and listen to them and I'll, I don't even agree with what I, what I said sometimes. But as our perspective changes and as our, as our truth and our knowledge grows, so too will the wisdom of our leadership. And I, I serve on a leadership with some guys who are way wiser than me. I, I got Billy and he's a doctor, so you know. The wisdom just oozes out of him. But I serve on a leadership with guys who are wise. And we make decisions that are thought, thoughtful, that we, that we have prayed over. Some of us have lost sleep over. I, I, real quick, before we launched the building campaign, that was one of the seasons of my life that, um, man, I... I slept maybe an hour a night for 
probably a month as we were getting ready to present that to you guys. Because I know what it looks, you know, um, preachers have such a, a stereotype of all we do is yell at you and then ask for your money. Sometimes. The Todd's just come in here and lovingly talk sweetly to you and then ask for your money, which you should give them some of your money because they're doing really cool things with your money. But before we launched that building campaign, I, my stomach was in knots. I even had, a, I may have shared this with you, I even had a, had a local pastor come up to me one time. I was eating lunch at Rosa's. Don't confront me at Rosa's. That's my, my happy spot. And he was like, I hear you're launching a building program. I had no idea how we knew. And I was like, yeah, we are. And he was like, this is a terrible time to launch a building program. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you're older than me. You've lived here longer than I have. Maybe you're right. Um, well, we launched a three-year program that you guys committed, I think, $739,000 to. We finished the three-year program, and you guys had given, like, well over 800000 to a commitment that was only 730. Why? Because leadership spent the time to pray, to talk, to plan, and to present. And then something happened. And you guys probably don't even know what happened, but then something happened. That night, October, I think it was October 30th of 2016 is whenever we presented that. I could be off a couple of days. And then we started the campaign. But that Sunday night, I went home and slept the best that I had in like two months. And here's why. Because no one came up to me afterwards and said, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. Because had you, I literally would have cried in your face. <laughs> because every ounce of me was screaming. Every ounce of me was screaming, this is going to be a failure. This is going to fail. This, the church is not going to be behind this. You're not big enough. You don't need a new building. I don't have that big of a plan for you, Stephen. You just, we had just done a remodel. Some of you guys weren't here three years ago. We literally just remodeled the children's ministry. And about nine months late, we spent $70,000 over there. And like nine months later, I walked back in here and said, all right, good job. Now we need two million bucks. Good thing you hired a young preacher because a seasoned guy ain't that stupid. <laughs> but the reality of this church was incredible and it was, oh, I'm, I will become overwhelmed with the emotion talking about it because it was unity. And yes, it's a building project. And as a preacher, I hate building projects. They're expensive. I would much rather be spending money changing lives. I would so much rather office out of a portable building forever. But I come to find out, you got to pay for those too. So the fact we built one was even better. But I hate spending money on buildings. I hate the amount of time that I spend going through these buildings. It's exhausting. Bob's not even here this morning. I'd call him up to testify. It's exhausting. Construction workers are lazy. I don't know if you knew that or not. Construction workers are lazy. 
Nothing gets done in the time that they tell you that it's going to get done. None of it. That building was supposed to be built a year ago. I don't know what happened. Somebody took a really long nap. But never once. Maybe you felt it. You just haven't said anything to me. And don't feel emboldened now to start complaining to me about the building. It's not done yet. Let's get, please, let's get through it first. But here's what's happened. As people show up in this place and they see that going up and they go, what are you doing? I mean, we got one gajillion kids back here that we're cramming into closets because we don't have room for them. And a couple years ago, we said, hey, we need to take better care of our kids. So we decided that we were going to take care of our kids, and now we're building this building. We've been able to build it way under budget by the grace of God. Your offerings and commitments to it have blown leadership out of the water. To date, we still don't have any debt on anything that we've done. Yeah, yeah, I mean, celebrate that now because that might change. But when it does change, it'll be okay because we're a church that is unified and we know what our mission is. We want to see people in the name of Jesus Christ be moved from where they are to where God is calling them to be. And by the looks of it, there's a whole lot of people in our community that God is calling to be a part of this family. And so we felt like we needed to make room for them. We still fit. Great. But I believe that there will come a day in which we will no longer fit. And that's going to be awesome too. And grumblings are going to happen between then and now, now and then. You could grumble about how I just said that. That was backwards. But one thing will remain the same. I'm not giving you an option. It will remain the same. We will be a church that is unified in love. Colossians framed it up this way, that we will be a church that serves Christ. No more, no less. It is who we are. It is what we will always be. There will be times in which we may disagree. There will be times in which you may really like something and then we stop doing it. Maybe the times that we really don't like something and we keep doing it. There may be times in which you're not satisfied. There may be moments in which we're asking you to do things that you just simply don't want to do. But in the end, we are unified in love in Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you this morning as you take your communion. And I, I, I really... Like, I don't, we do this all the time. I know I tell you things to think about during communion, but I really want you, you need to think through this. What is your grumble? What is your complaint? Maybe not church is too general, but specific. Like what, what about your life in any aspect or facet of it? What is your complaint? And as you look at that piece of bread and as you look at that cup, how does it compare to what Jesus did? Because the reality of my life, I mean, if I could be complaining right now that I'm still not on a cruise ship. <laughs> you could be complaining right now that you're 
six-figure salary at work is in a seven-figure salary at work. You could be complaining that your car doesn't go fast enough, that your house isn't new enough, that your kids aren't pretty enough. Don't complain about that. (laughs) There's a multitude of things that you could find to complain about. And some are legitimate complaints, like the DMV. Some of them are dumb complaints, like the DMV. We can all find something that we don't like. Jesus could have too. But instead of looking at us and seeing all the things about us he didn't like, he looked at us and saw everything about us that he loved. You see, it's it's up to us is what I'm getting to. I, I can't make you love grace. I can't make you love God. I can't make you love each other. But I can ask you to choose to do that. This morning, if you've never chosen Jesus, and let today be that day. You may think to yourself, I I don't know if I know enough about him, if I have all the answers. Here's the great thing about my Savior is he doesn't need you to know anything (laughs) except for this one thing, that you are loved so much that he died to save you from your sin. You could choose that today. You could choose unity this morning. You could choose love this morning. Or you could choose to grumble. But that choice can't be made by me or our elders or this church. It can only be made by you. So as you look at that cup and that bread this morning, I want you to really ask yourself, is my grumble worth living life outside of unity? Can I let that go? And can I choose to be a truly forgiven person, to sit next to truly forgiven people, and to be found in unity and the love of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning confronted with the reality of, of our humanity. But God, we also find ourselves confronted with the overwhelming love and forgiveness that is found in your spirit. And as I think about the future of this place, I know that our unity found with each other and with you is what will propel us into wherever you're calling us to be. So God, I pray right now that you would break down the walls that we've built around ourselves and around each other. I pray that if there's any wrong that needs to be made right in this room, God, that we would choose to make it right this day. God, I pray as we look down at these elements this morning, that you would prick our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would move us to finally say yes to whatever it is that you've been calling us to for so long. 
God, above all, I pray that today we would choose unity. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We would love for you to connect with us weekly, so please be sure to subscribe to this channel. We would also ask that if you have been encouraged by this ministry, would you consider partnering with us financially? Your support helps us continue our mission of helping people move from where they are to where God is calling them to be. You can find all the ways to give at graceodessa.com give. Thank you.